title of today's teaching is This Is Not Our Home. This is not our home. I was actually going to title it We Are Pilgrims. So if you're allowed to have two titles, those are my two titles. We Are Pilgrims. This is not our home. This week I was assigned at the school that I'm a teaching assistant, intern, whatever you'd like to call it. I was assigned the task of teaching a literature class to second graders. And by God's grace, I'm still here today. was, there was no food fights in class or spitballs or anything like that, and they actually were paying attention. It's a praise report that they're all focused and raising their hands and interested in the topic at hand. And the topic was for me to read this book with them and ask them a bunch of questions. And the book is titled A Lion to Guard Us. And it's about a young girl, her two siblings that she's caring for, and her mother passes away. Her father moves to America. This is around the early 1600s. And he's going because he's a contractor to go help start building houses over there. And they're back in England. And The plot of the story is this main character, Amanda, watching after her young siblings, is trying to get to America to reunite with her father. And it's in London, and at the time, King James I is the king, and he is allowing ships to sail to America, primarily for business and trading. But Amanda is set to get on one of these ships to see her father, and sure enough, she's able to catch a ride to do this. And and by the way, while I'm teaching this class, the principal walks in, some regional vice president walks in, the teacher's in there, they're taking notes, no pressure, right? So (laughs) hopefully I did okay. But the story is a fiction story, A Lion to Guard Us, but it was based on true events that happened, um, and it showcases the trials and the difficulties that many people went through as they were trying to cross the Atlantic to come to America in the early 1600s. And as I was reading through the story, it captured my attention and it piqued my interest at what the pilgrims, some of us know that story, right? The pilgrims coming over on the Mayflower. And I don't know if they teach that anymore in many schools today, but I started to do a little bit more digging. And Thanksgiving is later on this month. And they had the first Thanksgiving there when the pilgrims arrived in 1620. So I just wanted to talk about that for a minute, just as an introduction to the teaching today. Now, these pilgrims were called separatists because they separated themselves from the Church of England. They could have stayed part of the Church of England, but the Church of England, in one sense, separated from the Catholic Church, but still believed a lot of the same things that the Catholic Church believed. And these pilgrims, these separatists said, we can't worship in that way. These things are unbiblical. Now the Puritans, they stayed in the church and said, we're going to try to purify the church. Hence the name Puritans. We're going to try to reform the church from within. And a lot of them were able to gain and accumulate a lot of wealth. But these separatists, they said, no, we're, we're going to work these menial jobs. We're going to live these poor lives and we're going to try to worship in secret. And that's what they did for some time. This is what William Bradford says of their life as they were living as separatists. They were hunted and persecuted. On every side, some were clapped up in prison. Others had their houses watched day and night. Most were obliged to flee and leave their houses, habitations, and the means of their livelihood. So eventually they left different parts of England for Holland and were there for about 10 to 12 years. And finally, in 1620, They said, we want to worship freely. 
We want to serve God. We want to spread the gospel. And on September 6th, 1620, they set out for America. And some of you might know the story, but 66 days at sea, one of the people on the boat died. One was thrown overboard and didn't die, surprisingly. He grabbed a hold of some part of the ship and they were able to bring him back in. Pretty crazy. There was a hundred or so people on the ship, 30 more that were like the captain and those that were helping to bring the ship there. So 130 altogether, but a hundred of them or so were packed into 1,400 square feet underneath in the hold of the ship. And the ceilings were five feet high, 1,400 square feet. That's about the size of a small house, right? And imagine 100 people just, just stuck in there, days on end, stuffy, hot, smelly, all of that stuff for 66 days. A baby was born on the ship. They named him Oceano. He later ended up dying, unfortunately. But finally, December 16th, 1620, the ship landed, right? Plymouth Rock. And they were overjoyed. And this is how William Bradford describes it as they landed that morning. Being thus arrived in a good harbor and brought safe to land, they fell on their knees and blessed the God of heaven, who had brought them over the vast and furious ocean and delivered them from all the perils and miseries thereof, again to set their feet on the firm and stable earth." So they're praising the Lord. They're thanking God that they finally landed, that they they made it to land. They didn't even know. One of the masts broke, actually, as they were sailing over. They didn't even know if they were actually going to make it. They finally make it. They're overjoyed. And then what happens that first winter? Pretty much half of them are wiped out. Half of them die in the first winter from pneumonia, malnutrition, the freezing cold weather killed, decimated half of them. But it was a sacrifice they were willing to take because they acknowledged this world was not their home. They were seeking a better country, a heavenly one. And so they made these great sacrifices. William Bradford also said, as to them leaving Holland, quote, So they left that goodly and pleasant city, which had been their resting place near 12 years, but they knew they were pilgrims and looked not much on these things, but lift up their eyes to the heavens. So they took this great risk. And many of us, who knows where we would be today if it wasn't for these pilgrims who came over and took these great sacrifices upon themselves for us. So where did they get this idea to be a pilgrim in the land, to be a pilgrim here on planet earth? If you'll turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8 through 16. This is the Faith Hall of Fame, as we call it. The writer to the Hebrews is trying to strengthen and encourage and build up this church, these people that were being heavily persecuted, that were going through a lot. And so he points their attention to Abel, to Enoch, to Noah, and in verse 8, Abraham. Hebrews 11, 8. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he lived as an alien or a stranger in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. 
For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive even beyond the proper time of life, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore also there was born of one man, and him as good as dead at that, as many descendants as the stars of heaven in number, and innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. All these died in faith, without receiving the promises But having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles. If you have a King James and New King James or a Geneva Bible on you, pilgrims, it says there, strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things, make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. I want to focus primarily on verse 13 today. It says, all these died in the faith. Who's the all these? When I was originally reading it, putting this study together, I thought, well, it's got to be going back to the beginning of this faith chapter when it talks about Abel and then it talks about Enoch and Noah. And then I remembered that Enoch, as it says, was taken up by God. He didn't die. And so it says all these died in the faith. It seems to be referring then to just Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Sarah, all these died in the faith without receiving the promises. So I want to talk about what are these promises in just a few minutes, but also this Greek word for pilgrim. In verse 13, they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. The word is peripodemos, and it speaks of one who literally passes through. Someone still with personal relationship with the people in that locale, yet one who comes from a foreign country into a city or land to reside there by the side of the natives. Hence a stranger, a sojourner in a strange place. In the New Testament, it metaphorically speaks in reference to heaven as the native country and one who sojourns on earth. Paul puts it this way in Philippians 3.20. Our citizenship is in heaven, from which we eagerly wait for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the bodies of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion and the power that he has to even subject all things to himself. That's where our citizenship is in heaven. You might be a citizen of Idaho. You might really like it up here in Idaho. By God's grace, you didn't have to come up here in a tent like Abraham did as he traveled to the land of Canaan. Most of us have nice houses for the most part. We have food in the refrigerator. We have a car, maybe two cars, three cars. We have more than many people in the world. One article I read as I was putting together this study said 811 million people go to bed hungry every night. Said if you make more than $25,000 a year, you're in the top 10% of earnings in the world. And all these statistics we could go over and show how well off we are compared to many, many people. Yet the Bible reminds us that we're foreigners. We're strangers in the land. We're just passing through. 
And if we're not careful, we can hold on too tightly to the things that we have. First Peter 1 verse 1 uses the same Greek word, peripodemos, pilgrim, sojourner, where it says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who reside as strangers, sojourners, pilgrims, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. It's also used in 1 Peter 2.11. Peter says, Beloved, I urge you as pilgrims or strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against your soul. He's saying, as God's people, you're passing through. It's like a carnival, right? This craziness all around us, people living for themselves. He's saying, don't partake in these things. Live a holy life. He goes on to say in verse 12, 1 Peter 2, 12, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. There should always be that tension while we're in this world. It's as if one of our feet is here in this world and one foot's in heaven. That's how it should be. Not one foot in the world and one foot in the church. That's how I used to feel growing up. I would tell my mom, Mom, I feel like I have one foot in the world and one foot in the church. I feel like a ping pong ball. I'm just going back and forth. Sunday, I'm like, okay, I'm on fire for the Lord. And then Monday, I'm back to school, back with my friends, back living for the things of this world. And then I was just going back and I was just so sick of it. I'm like, I can't live like this anymore. Until finally, I just said, I want to surrender everything to the Lord. And Jesus said in John 17, 16, they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. He was crying out to his father, the high priestly prayer. And he says, they are not of the world. He's talking about his disciples. He's talking about us. And he said two verses earlier in John 17, 14, I have given them your word and the world has hated them for they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Some of us used to have those bumper stickers. I think they went out of business. It was, that was the name of the business, I believe. Not of this world, right? And that's, they got the title of their company from these verses that we're not of this world. We're in the world. We're not of the world. We're passing through. We're sojourners. We're pilgrims. But what are we doing in the meantime? We're living in a pagan world. This became more apparent in the last, in the recent years, because we're still in a free country, I guess you could say, but during COVID, during all the lockdowns and all the government overreach and all the different things that occurred, we really saw men's wickedness play forth in our society. Just turn on the news and you'll see what's going on in the world today in this crazy place that we live. We're called to be different. So what are the promises in verse 13? When I read these verses as I was putting together this teaching, I just stopped there and said, without receiving the promises, all these died in faith without receiving the promises. And I'm like, what is that? And I sat there and I prayed and I go, what, what are the promises that they did not receive? And I finally had to consult some commentaries because I was a little bit confused, but Let's look at Hebrews 10, 34 through 36. It'll, he- it'll, it'll help shed some light on what I believe the promises are. Hebrews 10, 34, for you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. 
They're being persecuted. Their houses are being taken away. They're not grumbling, complaining. They're not getting together and forming some military and militia to go fight back and wipe out these people. They're joyfully giving up their houses. They're joyfully giving up their possessions. Why are they doing this? He's saying you're doing this because you're looking to the reward. You're looking to your reward in heaven. You're looking to the possession of heaven. And so we also see that in Hebrews 11, 26, where it talks about Moses, considering the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. So it's saying Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Sarah, in verse 13, they died in faith without receiving these promises. They, they didn't inherit heaven during their life, yet they trusted that God was going to provide for them in the future. So that's definitely one of the promises. I believe there's three others. Number one, Abraham was promised in Genesis 22:17, numerous offspring like the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore. He didn't see that in his life. It wasn't fulfilled. His wife was barren. Sarah hadn't had any children yet. And God said, you're going to have descendants like the sand of the seashore. And they're getting older and older and older and years are going by. I mean, when God called Abraham, he was 75 years old. He's already really old at this time. I think Sarah was 65. And God says, okay, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. And he's going, she's pretty much past the time of childbirth. And years went on and years went on. And then God would promise again, don't worry. I'm going to make your descendants like the sands of the seashore. And then finally, she's 90 years old and he's 100 and God gives them the promised child, Isaac. But yet they didn't see these descendants in their lifetime. He had to lean on God and trust him and trust in these promises, which he didn't receive. Number two, the literal Canaan. The land of Canaan was promised to his descendants. Genesis 12, 7. God called him out of Haran to go to this place, Canaan. But he didn't go there to inherit the land. He went there as a sojourner, as a stranger, as a pilgrim. Listen to what Abraham said in Genesis 23, 4, when he talked to the people of the land of Canaan. Genesis 23, 4, he says, I am a stranger and a sojourner among you. Give me a burial site among you that I may bury my dead out of my sight. He said that when Sarah died, he went with them and went to them and pled for a burial site and confessed that he was a sojourner in the land. If you look today at the land of Canaan, modern day Israel, God fulfilled these promises. His children are there, many of whom still don't believe in him. So I say children, but God's true sons and daughters are those who put their faith in Jesus Christ. But as far as literal descendants of Abraham, many are there today. Number three, Jesus, the Messiah in the flesh. Genesis twenty-two fourteen, Genesis 22, 18, also affirmed in Acts 3, 24 through 26, that from his seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. How are we blessed today? How are many people all around the world blessed? Because through Abraham's seed came the son of God, Jesus Christ, who died for our sins, rose again on the third day. And because of his sacrifice, we're all saved. We're all blessed through him. So we have the numerous offspring, literal Canaan, Jesus, the Messiah, and the future home in heaven, which it testifies here in Hebrews eleven, ten, and 16, that this is what they were looking to. 
all these promises they saw from afar. They saw in a distance, and yet Abraham obeyed God. He went out on this journey, this 400-mile journey. Now, Barnes notes on the Bible helps us with this passage. He gives us six points, six things to remember to show us how great Abraham's faith was. Point number one, this journey that Abraham took from Haran to the land of Canaan was 400 miles. It's modern day Turkey all the way down to Israel. It's a desert, a desert land. And Barnes says it was a vast desert. It was tedious, perilous with no knowledge of the way, no frequented frequented path, no facility for traveling, no turnpike or railway. Point number two, Abraham was going to strangers. Who they were, he did not know. Point number three, he was leaving country, friends, home, the place of his birth, and the graves of his fathers with the moral certainty that he would see them no more. Point number four, He had no right to the country which he went to receive. He could wage no claim on the ground of discovery or inheritance or conquest at any former period. But though he went in a peaceful manner and with no power to take it, he could urge no claim to it whatever. Yet he went with the utmost confidence that it would be his. Number five, he had no means of obtaining possession. He had no wealth to purchase it, no armies to conquer it, no titles to it, which could be enforced before the tribunals of the land. The prospect of obtaining it must have been distant, and probably he saw no means by which it was to be done. In such a case, his only hope could be in God. And point number six, surely his friends at that time thought such a journey would be wild and foolish. The prevailing religion was idolatry. And here Abraham was testifying and believing and obeying the commands of the Most High God. To them it was fanatical. The whole transaction, therefore, was in the highest degree an act of simple confidence in God, where there was no human basis of calculation, where all the principles on which people commonly act would have led him to pursue just the contrary course. Nevertheless, he obeyed God. He went to the land. He continued to obey God. His faith grew strong, and we are blessed today because of that. And pretty much that's the entire Faith Hall of Fame. If you read all of these people that the writer to the Hebrews documents for us, all the odds were stacked against them. All things, humanly speaking, said do the opposite. Yet they followed God. They obeyed God. And because of that, you can almost call it the faith or the the chapter of the works hall of fame because it says by faith this person did this by faith they did this by faith they conquered kingdoms by faith they did this and that and it's amazing all the things that the people of god can accomplish through the power within them when they trust the lord so when everything's stacked against you and i where do we turn what do we do by god's grace may we have great faith like abraham and cling to his promises. The Bible says when we have great faith, we are children of Abraham. We are his sons and daughters. Romans 4.20 says, he grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. Galatians 3.7 says, those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. Galatians 
3.9, so then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. If we want to be blessed, if we want to have an abundance of joy in our lives, we need to obey God. We need to ask him and plead with him and submit to him and say, God, what is your calling upon my life? And then obey it. I remember several years ago, and I mentioned this a little bit ago, that I wanted to surrender everything to the Lord. I was tired of going back and forth in the world. One foot in the world, one foot in the church. It was exhausting. And I just said, Lord, I want to surrender every part of my life to you. But I said, Lord, just don't send me to a Muslim country where there's persecution and don't have me speak in front of people. Okay? Those are the two things. All right? Anything else? Anything in the church? Anything you want me to do? I'll do it, Lord. But honestly, I was like, I, for some reason, there was this back and forth in my mind that, Lord, if you try to send me to one of these Muslim countries, I just, I don't want to go be persecuted in a Muslim country. I don't know if I could do it. Like, I don't know, Lord... Even if you came and spoke to me right now, I want to believe that I would trust you and go, but I feel like I would be like Jonah and I'd go on the run. And it was both of those things, speaking in front of people and going to some Muslim country. And here I am today, right, speaking in front of people. And God has his way of helping us submit to him, right? And I've shared the story of me being in the back of an ambulance, not working on an ambulance as I did for a couple years as an EMT, but being in the back of an ambulance with a severe panic attack to where I thought I was having a heart attack and thought I was dying to where God in that ambulance said, Nick, are you going to submit everything to me? Because I could take your life right now, just like that. And God has his way of allowing us to step back to see the big picture and go, okay, God, you're in control. And by the way, if I signed up for the military like some of my friends did in the Marines and other branches of the military who willingly went to Muslim countries to fight, I would think if I signed up for the military that I would be like, absolutely, where do you guys want to send me? I'll go fight wherever you want. And it just makes me think the things that I'm willing to do for the things of this world, but when it comes to God and doing things for him, I have all these excuses. And it's like, I don't understand that. I still don't understand that. And so may God help us to submit to him, to obey him, to live selfless lives for others. Keith Green would say, you're all called to go to other countries unless God made it abundantly clear for you to stay. He wrote a song. I love Keith Green because he, he would just say it how it is. Sometimes he'd go a little bit too far. Everyone needs to go to another country, okay? And then I thought about it. And I'm like, did he move to another country himself? Now, he did go on a lot of missions trips. He did a, a lot of things for the Lord. And he wrote this song, Jesus commands us to go, but we go the other way. So he carries the burden alone while his children are busy at play, feeling so called to stay. Oh, how God grieves and believes that the world can't be saved unless the ones he's appointed obey his command and his stand for the world that he loved more than life. Oh, he died and he cries out tonight. Jesus commands us to go. It should be the exception if we stay. It's no wonder we're moving so slow when his church refuses to obey, feeling so called to stay. And so, Part of being a sojourner in this world, part of being a pilgrim, as we're called to be, is saying, Lord, I'm passing through. Here's my gifts. Here's my talents. Here's my desires. 
Conform them, Lord, with your desires. Conform them, Lord, with your will. Like Jesus in the garden, Father, if possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not my will, your will be done. We have desires. We have plans for our lives. We have a direction that we think we want to go down. But the question we need to ask God is, what direction do you want me to go? When I prayed about coming up here to Idaho, there was a wrestling match with that as well. And it came to the point where I felt I was being disobedient if I didn't come. And even if there was certain days to where I thought, yeah, but I have a house here in California and yeah, it's a really low mortgage. And I started to think of all these reasons why I could stay. And God's, I believe, clearly showed me you're being disobedient if you don't go. You can give a thousand reasons, Nick. I'm calling you to go, to serve. So what is he calling you to? And what is he still calling me to? Every day, I believe we should cry out to the Lord and say, Lord, your will be done in my life. And so that's part of being a pilgrim. Lord, where do you want me? How do you want to use me? And most of us have asked that question. And that's why most of us are here today. I don't know if anyone here has grown up in Idaho. Most of us moved here, to my knowledge, maybe perhaps a couple of us in this room grew up here, but we believe that this is where God's called us, or you probably wouldn't have moved here. And so there's people everywhere, everywhere to reach for the Lord. There's people in California, there's people in Idaho, there's people in every state, there's people around the world that need to hear the gospel. And so my prayer is, while we're here, Lord, use us for your glory. I keep praying, Lord, help us to reach these colleges, help us to reach the school where I'm at, help us to reach the, our neighbors, I think my wife told me the other day that there was this missionary who traveled the world for 20 years spreading the gospel and he confessed, I haven't even talked to my neighbor about the Lord. He goes, I haven't talked to my neighbors, but I'm spreading the gospel around the world. And it's a challenge. I mean, we talk about it. Let's, let's bring up the gospel with the person at the cash register and my neighbor. And it's not that easy, at least for me. And in our own flesh and in our own strength, we're just going to cower away from a lot of the things that God's called us to. That's why it gives us a whole chapter on faith, by faith. These are the things that you can accomplish when you trust the Lord, when you submit to him, when you rely on his strength and not your own. So perhaps you're also like me in that you've thought the gospel's gone out to most of the world by now with internet and social media and all the technology, surely the gospel's pretty much, we're almost there, right? I mean, it's almost to every country and tribe and people group. And there's probably only like a couple thousand or maybe a couple million left. And then when you look at the studies and you look at these different articles that are published, estimates say that two to three billion people still haven't heard the gospel. Two to three billion people. I don't understand that. According to joshuaproject.net, quote, the disturbing truth is that there may still be nearly 2 billion individuals who have never had a chance to hear the gospel. Now, I don't know what that does for you when you hear that, but when I first read that, I don't even know how to describe how I felt. How are there 2 billion people that haven't heard the gospel? So I've been crying out to the Lord, Lord, how can we be a part of this? And if we can't go, maybe God does want to send some of us. Maybe though we can send money. 
maybe we can pray a little bit more for it. I mean, that's a good place. I think that we can start is to pray that the Lord would give us wisdom, pray that he would guide us, pray that the gospel would go forth. And that's what Jesus said in Matthew 9, 37 and 38. The harvest is plentiful. The laborers are few. So beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into the harvest. And so I think we need to pray more for that. We're do, we're having prayer meetings every other week at the Owens house. And like me as well, you might not like praying in front of people and talking in front of people. And you might be like, I can't do that. I don't want to go. They're going to put me on the spot and have me pray in front of everyone. And that's not the case. Come over fellowship, get involved, but you don't have to pray. You can just come and sit in the back and observe and, and bring up a prayer request, share what's going on in your life if you'd like, but it's just another opportunity for us to get together and plead with the Lord and seek his face and submit to him. But if we can't go, maybe our dollars can. So in the days ahead, I'm going to be looking at organizations. I'm going to be looking at different ways on how we can partner and get finance finances and resources to reach these people. Because 99 cents out of every dollar that goes to overseas missions goes to people groups that have already heard the gospel. Only one cent out of every dollar, according to these studies that I read, I've read, go to these unreached people groups. It's not a focus of many people because they're hard to reach places. They're in jungles. They're in mountains. They're, in, they're illiterate. They're not as easy to get to. And it's easier to go to other places. So they're overlooked. And so I believe, just like the abortion issue and human trafficking and other big issues in our day, if we don't talk about it, we can just act like it doesn't exist, right? Well, it's not really happening. It's not really going on out there. We just stand our, as I call it, our holy huddle and we do our own thing and we live in the comforts of the world that we live in here. And then we overlook these things and we aren't a part of being in God's will. And so today is a reminder for us to plead with the Lord and see how he can use us. And so as we get ready to celebrate Thanksgiving at the end of the month, we know that the Bible says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and in everything, give thanks. We're to be people of thanks every day, right? Not just on Thanksgiving. We don't just celebrate Jesus on Christmas and on Christmas morning when we open presents, which actually can distract us from Jesus. And so my kids get way too many Christmas presents as it is. We're, me and my wife were talking the other day, like, let's just take them out for Christmas. And you can't stop the grandparents and the relatives from giving presents. Right. But for us, we're like, okay, we're probably not going to buy them any presents. Let's go take them out. Um, there's some dinosaur event in Nampa, I think that, I don't know. It seemed a little overpriced, but Leah said it looked really exciting. So take the kids out, enjoy that. But it's all about Jesus, right? Every single day, not just on Christmas, we celebrate him coming into the world, him dying for us on the cross. And we don't just give him thanks on Thanksgiving. We give him thanks every day. And I'm just convicted that we have so much to be thankful for. And every time I start to grumble and complain, I'm rebuked by my wife sometimes, but mostly by the Lord that Nick, you have so much. We have to keep this big, 
picture, the big perspective. We're passing through. There's people around the world that are starving to death right now. There's child trafficking going on. There's abortion going on. There's 2 billion people that haven't heard of Jesus. And here I am driving my car with seat warmers, getting my latte, and I have everything taken care of. And at times I start to feel guilty, like, Lord, am I doing enough for your kingdom? And we don't want to live in this state of guilt. Like, oh, I have a nice house and a nice car and I'm just going to live guilty and, you know, because nobody else has anything. No, it should motivate us out of thankfulness to the Lord. Thank you, Lord, for blessing me. Now give me wisdom on how to, what to do with all of this. It's yours. It's not mine. I mean, God gives, God takes away. We came into this world with nothing. We're going to leave with nothing. So it's all his and we don't want to hold on to it too tightly. We want to be willing to give it up. We want to say, Lord, this is my life. These are my possessions. These are my things. What would you have me do with it? Maybe you remember the rich young ruler. God, I don't believe, is calling everyone to be like the rich young ruler when Jesus said, go sell all your possessions and give to the poor and come follow me. And if you remember, he put his head down. I call, man, I got to give up all my riches and follow you but I believe God is calling some of us to that. I mean, what if God walked up? What if Jesus walked up to you? What if you were living in his time and he said, sell all your possessions and follow me? Would it be like the Jonah thing? Like I mentioned earlier, if God called me to go to a Muslim country and where I'd possibly be persecuted, Jesus is saying, these things are hindering you from experiencing my joy, my peace, my love and eternal joy. They're getting in the way. And I want to do the best thing for you. I'm the great physician. I need to do some surgery and it's going to hurt, but it's going to be the greatest thing that has ever happened to you. And for some of us, God needs to do a work in our lives. We need to allow him. And some of us are tempted to run. And that's my prayer that we wouldn't, that we would fully submit every part of our lives to him. So does God want us all to go to another country? Am I saying, okay, I'm going to have sign-up sheets up here at the end of the service and tell me what country you're going to and get ready to sell your house? No, I'm not saying that. But I'm saying I believe we all need to be more willing to submit to the Lord's will and say, Lord, what's your will for my life? There's a lot of needs out in this world and the time is short and time goes by quick. And just the last 20 years, as I remember, I was in college and or high school, even 2001, 2002. I'm like, that was... 20 years ago and time is a ticking and I'm not getting any younger and my kids aren't helping me feel any younger. And so while there's still time, we need to be saying, Lord, what do you have for me? Use me for your glory. But I didn't see Paul writing. I don't see Paul writing to the churches. Ephesus, you guys need to sell everything and go on the mission field with me. And same with you in Rome and Thessalonica and Philippi. And you all need to become missionaries. So what are you guys doing staying in those cities? I don't see him saying that necessarily. But I also do see Jesus tell his disciples in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go. And make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. So we do see the great commission there, the command to go. Some go, some stay. We should all be playing a part in it somehow. And so that's my prayer today. Some are Silas's and Timothy's and 
Marks and Lukes and Pauls, and some are called to do that. Some of us that are called to stay, at least for this time, need to pray about how we can help them get the message out. Even in the book of Acts, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, you see the early church begin. You see Peter stand up and preach and thousands of people get saved. And he doesn't immediately say, okay, welcome to the mission field. Let's get out and go. But they were radically devoted to one another. They were radically devoted to submitting to the Lord and his will. And it says in Acts 4, 34, for there was not a needy person among them. For all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet. They would be distributed to each as any had need. So they weren't like, oh, I'm off the hook. Paul, you go on the front lines and Luke and these other guys, you go on the front lines and give everything up for the gospel and we'll just stay back here and we got, we got it easy. They're like, okay, my house isn't mine. This isn't mine. I'm giving it up. Here you go, apostles. It's all yours. Distribute it as you see fit. And so none of us are off the hook, right? If you're going to sharpen pencils, sharpen them for the glory of God, right? Do it with all your might. If you're a stay-at-home mom, do it with all your might. If you're setting up these chairs in the morning, you're really helping us out, right? The sound guys, you're really helping us out. Whoever's back there with the kids, helping us out. Where can we serve? How can we be used? That's my plea for us today. Paul says of the gifts that the Philippian church gave him, the finances that they gave him to support in the ministry. He says it's a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And he told them, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. And I believe that that's why that Philippian letter is maybe the most endearing and precious letters in the New Testament is because of the special love that Paul had for this church, because they understood what the cost was of ministry. And he says, no other church gave in the matter of giving and receiving as you did. No other church met my needs like you Philippians. You guys were, it's as if you were there with me on the mission field. Epaphroditus was being sent back and forth. They sent him to Paul to bring the gift. And if you remember in Philippians chapter two, I believe it was, Epaphroditus got sick and the Philippian church was like overwhelmed that he was sick. And, and there was just this close bond that was going on between Paul and Epaphroditus and those who wanted to get the gospel out and those who were sending them and giving financially. And it's a great picture of what the modern day church should look like. So, God is calling us to be like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Sarah, sojourners, foreigners, pilgrims, being obedient to God's call in our lives. Psalm 39, 12, David says, Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my cry. Do not be silent at my tears, for I am a stranger with you, a sojourner like all my father's. In Hebrews eleven thirteen, it said that they had confessed they were strangers and pilgrims. That word confess is homo legeo. It means to say the same things. They were saying the same things as God was saying about them. You're strangers on this earth. You're sojourners. You're just passing through. And that's what David says here in Psalm 39, 12. God, I'm just a stranger in this land. Yes, I was a shepherd boy at one time, overlooked. I was a songwriter. And then I was called to be king. But here he says, I'm just passing through. 
I'm doing all of this, Lord, for your glory. So in closing, we can learn from the pilgrims who took great risks and suffered tremendously to further the kingdom of God and worship freely and live a bold life for Christ, not conforming to this world. They were separatists who could have stayed part of the Church of England and prospered, yet they knew that that would not honor God, and so they fled, and many of them lost their lives because of it. We can learn from Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Sarah, who God kept his promises to them, even though from a human perspective, it made no sense. I mean, 90 years old, giving birth? Amazing. Abraham, no claim to the land. A 400-mile desert journey. Everything was stacked against them, yet God came through. I think Pastor Joe did a sermon once, but God. And he just went through all the verses in the Bible where it says, but God. But God did this. But God did that. So what's stacked against you in your life? What about me? What are the things in our lives to where we don't believe that God can come through? May he break down those barriers in our lives and give us great faith like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. I love what Jesus said. He said, Abraham rejoiced to see my day and he saw it and was glad. It all points to Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the father in heaven. So if we're trusting in Christ this morning, we're blessed. We're saved. We have a church family. If you look to your left and right, you have someone who loves you dearly, who cares about you. And that's what the church is about. Okay. If you look to the left and there's a wall over there, then that doesn't apply. I saw some people doing that and saying to their neighbor, look, he said that, but (laughs) People love you here. I love you. We care about you. And what a blessing it is It is to be a part of the church. And so let's get the message out. Let's boldly proclaim it. And let's be able to say, this world is not our home. We desire a better country, a heavenly one. Amen. All right. Praise the Lord.